Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. If we really grasp grace, tell God He's great. It needs to be what oozes out of our personality, that if we really know that we are nothing, bring nothing to the table in this deal but our sin, and God provides us generously with everything, then that makes me think, you know what, I'm nothing, but God is everything, see, but He gives grace to the humble. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, there are many warnings against pride. But not pride in the sense of satisfaction or a job well done, the pride that stems out of self-righteousness or conceit. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is continuing a series called Lessons on Grace and is focusing on how, if we let it, our pride can consume us to the point where there's no room left for God in our lives. And yet we're nothing without Him. Well, here's Pastor Mike. I'll never forget the 92 Landers quake. Remember that one? Those who've been around California for a while. The last Sunday in June, four in the morning, here's this huge quake, 7.6, the Landers quake was, and it rattled us down here in South Orange County. And I remember uh, waking up, wow, you know, checking things out, making sure everything's okay. And then you, you kind of doze back to sleep, got up, was getting ready for church. And then as I'm just about ready to go, there was the second quake. Remember that? The Big Bear quake, and that was like a 6.7, so it was really big too. Rocked the bedroom, and I went off to church that morning thinking this is gonna be an interesting day. And um, read later in the papers that that was, those two quakes set off the most intensive seismic activity in Southern California in at least 40 years. There were over 5,000 aftershocks, and 10 of them were 5.0 or greater. And you know how that works. Most of them are you know, within the next 12 hours or so of the quakes. Well, interestingly enough, everyone thought it was a good day to go to church. So church was filled that morning. <laughs> a lot of people even had visitors there that morning. And uh, the most interesting thing about it was when I got up to preach the sermon that day, all these big quakes would come in the middle of my sermon, like at all the right times too, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'd make some strong point and the place would shake. And I prayed, I said, God, if you could do that every Sunday, that would just be, that would be ideal. Really increase the effectiveness of my sermons. But there's this sense of smallness you get in the midst of this. There it goes, it's really big. You can't say, hey, stop it or, unplug it, you know, it's out of control, or let us get off for a little while. It's, you're there, and you're in for the duration, and you're just along for the ride. It makes you feel small. It makes you feel small, just like we're just little people on this big planet, and every now and then things shift and shake, and it gives you a sense that uh, definitely things like earthquakes, much bigger than, than we are, that we, that we are all corporately. I mean, we're just tiny little specks on this planet. Same kind of feeling I had after this earthquake and kind of pondering this whole smallness in the universe idea was exactly the same kind of attitude and feelings I took away from my study this week of 2 Samuel chapter 7. There is something about this topic in 2 Samuel 7 that will make us feel really small and make something else seem really, really big. In this sense, God and His grace toward us 
that God is the God who promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David that I give you everything. And if you want to repay me, if you want to settle the score, if you want to make it even, if you think you can buy my love or in some way do something that would merit my goodness in your life, you're kidding yourself. As a matter of fact, you think you can pay me back, forget it. I'm going to give you even more. And I'm going to show you that it's all about me and it's not about you. And there's an interesting thing that happens in the second half of this chapter, and I hope you'd turn there. Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning in, in verse number 17, as Nathan comes in and explains everything to David that God had revealed to him about the fact that, David, you can't do anything for me that would impress me. I'm God. Don't forget that. I do everything for you, and you need to be amazed because I got a lot more that I'm going to do for you, and that ought to blow your mind. As Nathan reveals all of this prophecy to David, he shrinks in his own mind, in his own eyes, and he says, wow, grace, that kind of grace is amazing. And it's the kind of grace that David only really had a glimpse of compared to the kind of New Testament perspective we should have, knowing who we are by the indictment of Scripture and seeing God in all of His glory through the pages of the Bible, looking to us and daring to do anything for us that would be good when we deserve just the opposite. It's an amazing truth. And I want to show you today that when we really recognize that God has done everything, there is something that should be rightly happening in our lives. There should be a response that God would expect from us. And I want to show it to you beginning in verse 18. After all these words wafted into David's ears, he says in verse 18, now he was overwhelmed. You see it by his posture. He goes in before the Lord and he sits down. And then he asks a question, middle of verse 18, three words. Who am I? Who am I? There's a good place for anyone who really starts to grasp the essence of grace. That's a good place to, to start with the question, who, who am I? Oh, sovereign Lord, and, and what is my family that you've brought me this far? He looks at all the things that he has, and God has just reminded him, you didn't earn any of it, you didn't get any of it by your own ingenuity, by your own greatness, by your own intelligence. I gave it all to you. It's all grace. It's all a gift. And David says, oh, my goodness, I'm so small. I'm, I'm so unworthy. Who am I? I've done nothing to merit this goodness. And if that weren't enough, you turned around and started talking about my future. He says in verse 19, if that were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And then this interesting rhetorical question, is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant. Yeah, he does. He actually knows him a lot better than David knows him because God looked at David and everything in his future that we're about to read about in just a few chapters, saw all of his failures, all of his rebellion, all of his sin, and he still promised all of this to David. David didn't even know all that was coming, but he says, you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. And then here's the sentence that convinces me David understood this concept of grace. Look at it, verse 21. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and you've made it known to your servant. You see, that's the difference between the rest of the world and those who understand grace. They recognize that they don't earn anything in God's sight that they don't gain any merit by anything that they do. They realize that if God blesses, He blesses for His own sake. He blesses because of His own intentions, not because He looks at Mike Fabares or anyone else and says, gee, I'm impressed. I'm going to respond to that. As Paul put it, who can give to the Lord that the Lord should repay? It's just impossible. You can't do it. God's not indebted to anyone. And David gets it. 
But you notice in this first few verses, these first few statements of David, he has a very contrite attitude. He sees himself as, as tiny in the eyes of God. Keep your finger here and turn over to Job chapter 25. Let me underscore for you that this is an incredible need in the church today, particularly the Western American church, particularly the Western American church in affluent areas, in peacetime, no less. It seems that Christianity today is producing more than ever before a band of, of self-centered, egotistical Christians that seem to think in some perverted way, though they may never say it, that God owes us. We wonder when something bad in our lives happened, God, how could you let that happen? Or something's going wrong in our marriage, and we slap our fist in our palm and say, we deserve better. And we have no idea the perspective of someone who understands grace, that we deserve nothing from God but His rejection and outer darkness and wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth because we're imperfect. And God says, I look at you and everything about you disgusts me. You've got to recognize that from a biblical perspective because all of you, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a hard thing for us to imagine because we're so used to looking at each other and comparing ourselves with each other. People that understand grace have taken a good look at God and they've said, it's amazing. It's amazing that you would look to me and do anything for me because I recognize that I deserve nothing but your rejection and you're going to give me acceptance. And not only that, you're going to lavish on me all these good things that I already have. And, and even more mind-blowing than that, one day you're going to usher me into a kingdom filled with peace and blessing and joy and rewards for things that you have initiated in my life. Amazingly unfair, incredibly inequitable. And yet God says, that's what I'm going to do for you because it's all about me, not about you. When we recognize that, our view of ourselves changes. Look at it from the words of Bildad, one of... Job's friends, and if you've studied Job's, the book of Job, and you know anything about Job's friends, you may say, oh, these guys are full of hot air. They're not, they're, they know nothing. But remember this. When we always quote these statements of Job's righteousness, we're always looking really early in the book, aren't we? Through the book, Job's attitude, if you've studied this book carefully, continues to deteriorate until he's starting to shake his fist at God and say, God, this isn't right. This isn't fair. And he starts defending and justifying himself, saying, I need a hearing with God. Where's God? Let's, let's have a little court hearing here so that I can justify myself in his eyes. And Bildad comes back with a godly perspective that's so consistent throughout the whole Bible that that's not the way men should think of themselves in light of God. Look at it with me. In verse number two, he starts with these big words. He says, dominion and awe, they belong to God, and all of us should stand in awe in His presence if we understood Him. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. I mean, the stars, the universe, the galaxy. I could, we could just amaze ourselves with all the things that God has put into orbit in its perfect, consistent, incredibly intelligent design. And he says, can His forces be numbered? Upon whom does his light not rise? I mean, he gives life and breath and everything else to men. We, in him, live and move and exist. He is the source of all things. Well, if you really understand that, then this question is definitely rhetorical in verse number four and impossible to answer. How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? Well, obviously he can't. Look at verse 5, if even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man, now here's a good phrase to, to crochet on a pillowcase or something for your house, right? <laughs> how much less man who is, who is but a maggot, you don't see that at the Christian bookstores on plaques, you know? <laughs> You're not going to find that in the, in the card section there. At the, but, but this is the godly response, how much less man who is but a maggot, the son of man who, who is only a worm. 
And here's the godly perspective. If you really understood God, and then you really assessed yourself, and if you really understood that He gives even when we don't deserve, it takes our prideful minds and it turns our head down, and it takes our inflated chests and it deflates us, and it moves us to a place of contrition where we understand God is great and I'm nothing. And that's why those song lyrics are so profound and so rejected by the world. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. People that understand grace understand the word is accurate. We are in his sight. Nothing but rejectable. And yet he gives to us and it humbles the heart. God looks at pride. He says, I can't work with that. It's not an accurate perception of reality. That's why the Bible says constantly, three times repeated verbatim almost, God is opposed to the proud, see, but he gives grace to the humble. Have you ever pondered that statement repeated three times in Scripture? He's opposed to the proud. Why? Because it's not, it's not the right attitude. What does he want? What does he require of us that we walk humbly with our God? That's the idea. When he sees pride in our lives, he says, I can't work with that. And he begins to oppose our lives. But he says, you know, if you recognize that humility is what it's all about, if you recognize the reality of your position before me, then what does he say? I give you more grace. Not only can you not get into the front door of Christianity unless you're humble enough to recognize that you're a sinner in need of God's salvation, you can't go anywhere in the Christian life without constantly monitoring and policing your attitude, making sure that you're a humble person. Do you recognize that? Because he says, I give grace to the humble. When he recognizes that people get it, then he's anxious to pour and lavish on them even more. I give grace to the humble. See, the pencil can't boast of the letters it's, it writes, and the, the ax can't be proud of the trees that it cuts down because they're just tools. Unless the woodsman sharpens the ax and wields it, there'll be no trees that are cut down in the forest. Unless the author sharpens the pencil and uses it, then, then it's worthless. It's just clutter on a desk. And God looks at us and says, who are you guys? Pots? Looking at the potter, thinking you don't need him? You're just tools. You're vessels. I've created you, and you're imperfect at that. It's so important for us to grasp this truth and to say, God, I know you want in my heart humility, true, genuine humility. Back in our passage, we see David quickly shifts from thinking of himself to thinking of God in verse 22. And this is so important because in reality, you can see in some perverted, twisted way, we can begin to fixate on ourselves under the guise and mantle of humility, right? People go around, oh, I'm awful, I'm rotten, I'm a terrible person. And they're so fixated on that that the focus remains on them. As someone once said, it's really not about thinking less of yourself. It's really about, you know, thinking less of yourself. You see? Yeah, it's not just that, that I've got this low view of me, although that's helpful in light of my perspective as it relates to God. But it's that I get the focus off of me. I shift the spotlight from me to him. And look at how he does that. Verse 22, enough of who am I and who's my family. He says in verse 22, how great you are. That's the focus of the Christian. That's the focus of the person that grasps grace. God, you're great. The attention of my life should shift and quickly deflect to you. Oh, sovereign Lord, there's none like you. There is no God but you, as we've heard with our own ears. Look at all these direct comments directed specifically to God. You are great. There's no one but you. There's no one like you. And David says, you're a great God. And he tells him that specifically and directly. Not only do we need to be humble, that's what David was, and thank God that he showed us and modeled for us the response to grace that we should all have. 
He's a humble person and so should we, but the second neat thing about this whole passage is that he shifts the attention from himself to God and he starts telling God he's great and that's what we need to do. If we really grasp grace, tell God he's great. Don't just do it once. This needs to be a continual characterization of the Christian life. It needs to be what oozes out of our personality, that if we really know that we are nothing, bring nothing to the table in this deal but our sin, and God provides us generously with everything, then that makes me think, you know what, I'm nothing, but God is everything. And he demonstrates by everything he does his grace and goodness in my life. And that is a focus that's not just ethereal, it's very practical. And I note the first thing about this in verse 22, that it's very directed. It's not just a, an attitude of thankfulness. It is the action of saying thanks. And there's a difference there, isn't, isn't there? I mean, if you were to give me $5,000 just because you wanted to give me a nice present, and I sat back and said passively, I'm filled with thanksgiving, that's a little different than looking you in the eye and saying, thank you. <laughs> I'm grateful to you. Thank you. God, I think, and it's so funny during, during Thanksgiving when we see in our secular culture, non-Christians try and participate in Thanksgiving. Right? They talk about thanks in some general sense. But thanks means nothing unless it's directed to a person, right? I've got to be thankful to someone for doing something for me. That's what thanks is all about. I think there's nothing that we need to focus on more in terms of our actions in our lives than reflecting a, a grateful attitude. And that's what worship's all about. Sometimes we think of worship as a guy in some gunny-sacked robe with a, you know, a rope for a belt, a burning candles with stained glass all around, and we think that's worship. That has nothing to do with worship. What worship is about is people who are indebted and grateful to God expressing that in specific terms. And I say specific because look at what he does in verse 23. He starts going down a laundry list. Who is like your people Israel? Not that that's the focus. They're blessed because they are the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, to make a name for himself, to perform great and awesome wonders by, here's some specifics, driving out those nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. That's where this whole thing got started with Israel. You showed your great wonders and signs. You've established your people Israel and they're your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. He starts saying, look at all the specifics. Just go right on down the line. He says, and see the things that God has done that are great. See, people that recognize grace in their lives start to see it in their environment. They start to recognize that things that surround them are specific examples of God's grace. I mean, I hope it dawned on you, but if it didn't, let it dawn on you now that a 7.0 earthquake took place in the middle of nowhere where no one in their right mind would ever choose to live, right? Think about that. You put that earthquake right here in Los Angeles, and you got a lot of death and destruction, don't you? But we sit back and think, woo, I'm glad, you know, thank goodness, because if it would have happened in L.A., in, in Santa Ana or San Clemente, some of us might be tempted to say that's not fair. Well, wait a minute. For us to all get buried in rubble and, and tossed out into the sea and drowned out there, what do you mean that wouldn't be fair? I mean, isn't that ultimately what we deserve from God is his utter wrath and his rejection? I mean, if you understand God and you understand yourself, if we have an earthquake in Southern California that ends up being in the middle of nowhere, my goodness, who cares? It is a specific example of God's grace. And not just the things he doesn't do in our lives. Let's start thinking about the things he does do. 
You think you deserve a good relationship in your life? You, you think we deserve living in a wonderful place where the sun shines and we got air to breathe that actually oxygenates our lungs without any pain? You think we deserve good health, marriage, air-conditioned place to worship, a Bible in our hands? Those are things that should just constantly fixate our minds on an attitude of thanksgiving. Oh, you know, I just live a normal life. Nothing really exciting happens. It doesn't have to be some exciting wonder or magnificent thing. If we really start to think about it, when Junior's cold starts to clear up, that is an act of God's grace. And if I understand grace, that I don't deserve it to be better, and God gives it to me anyway, it should focus my whole attention on saying to God, God, thank you for that. And that's a hard thing because it fights against the grain of our natural depraved attitudes. Because at the end of my day, if you're like me, cut from the same stock of depravity I am, my general reaction to a day is to go home and, and think about all the things that went wrong, right? <laughs> what, what are all the garbage that happened and the things that went wrong? Perhaps sometimes for good motives, that I'd like them to be better tomorrow. But oftentimes at the dinner table, we debrief on all the bad stuff, don't we? Just think, if people like us could grasp grace, that it wouldn't be the things that are bad that surprise us, it would be the things that are good that would catch our attention. Do you know what? This happened today at the office, and man, that is an act of grace. Do you know in our neighborhood today, this is what happened? Wow, that is a, a sign of God's love in our lives. You know, this good thing took place over here. Wow, and we spent, let's just pretend that we as Christians could grasp the grace of God. Imagine what the discussions at the dinner table would be all about. Look at all the good God has done. And perhaps it would culminate in a time of prayer where we bow our heads before God and say, God, we just want to spend some time thanking you for your grace in our lives. And here's some examples of what you've done for us today. Do you think I would change our attitudes? You bet. You won't be able to lift your head in pride. And what you're going to start to see is that your heart starts to fill with real gratitude for the good. You start saying the bad. Wow, you know, it's just surprised it's not worse. And you start saying, God, I'm so grateful for what you're doing. Do you have that perspective on life? Are you ready to start making that a, a regular part of your, your verbiage, your discussion, your dialogue? It needs to be. David says, you know, look at all the specific things you've done, not just for me. And if you think nothing good is going on in your life, he stretches it out there. Look at all, all these people that I know that are blessed by you. So much to praise you for. Who is like you? You're awesome, God. You're listening to Focal Point in a series called Lessons on Grace from Pastor Mike Fabares. If you'd like the study notes or if you'd like to listen to the complete message, go to focalpointradio.org. Just look for the sermon called What to Do When God Has Done Everything. You know, there are plenty of teachers in our world today who are more than happy to water down God's message, only teaching what people want to hear. But we need the unaltered, unadulterated Word of God to transform our hearts, lives, and culture. And that's why Bible teaching ministries like Focal Point are so important. So will you help magnify the reach of this needed message? Your support of Focal Point helps us reach a wider audience with biblical, balanced teaching that doesn't pull punches or shy away from difficult truths. And God is using your support to touch lives. Listen to this note from a listener named Bob. He writes, your ministry has been a genuine source of encouragement and perseverance relating to the prior loss of my wife and previously our first daughter. May the Lord continue to guide, direct, and bless all that is done at Focal Point in His name and provide His continuing protection and care for all those associated with Focal Point. Well, on behalf of Bob and so many others, 
thank you for supporting this ministry. And when you give today, we'll express our thanks with a practical book titled All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Pastor Spurgeon helps us understand why relying on our own good works is futile and shows us a better path to follow instead. Request this practical guide to understanding God's grace when you give by calling 888-320-5885. That's 888-320-5885. Or when you go to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, so glad you joined us. And be sure to come back tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Pastor Mike. That's coming up Friday on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.